I think I just got off a horse. <laughs> oh my, it's a joy to be home. Pat and I joined Central in 1969. Taught school here for a year and then went into evangelism. So the year 2000 will be our 50th year, actually, of that. So I've been here forever. In 63, uh, Jim Bloom, the oldest Bloom boy, and I went from school down to his dad's church. Where was that? Bradenton, yeah. So that's when I met the clan. The whole clan was there. And I thought I moved into a boy's dorm. <laughs> which is fair. <laughs> but anyway, it's a joy to be here. I, I had a couple of funny things happen to me recently. Here's a cartoon. You, you can draw your own, but it's the renowned surgeon talking to the patient. We're going to try a new procedure, and either way, you'll be famous. <laughs> that would be terrible, wouldn't it? <laughs> oh, here's one. A man stood outside a church holding signs that read, The end is near, and turned back before it's too late. After a while, a car came around the corner seeing the men with their signs, the driver, <laughs> this is crazy. The driver called out angrily, Get out of here, you religious nuts. And he zoomed by. About 10 seconds later, two men heard a splash. One turned to the other and said, You know, we should have wrote a sign that says bridge out. <laughs> Wouldn't that be horrible? Now, this one you'll love. A blonde and her husband were watching the evening news when the, newcast, the newscaster said, In international news, five Brazilian men died in a skydiving accident in Rio de Janeiro. The blonde suddenly burst into tears, and her husband tried to comfort her, telling her that they participated in a risky sport anyway. They must have known the dangers, but it did not relent. She continued to cry. Through her sobs, the blonde said to her husband, it is absolutely terrible. How many is a Brazilian? <laughs> <laughs> well, I may as well try one of my own. <laughs> I know I've said it before, but to preach on only one lung it's probably the hardest thing I have to do, but the other lung is gone because of secondary smoke in the bar where I work. But when the other lung kicks in, I'm ready to go. Call 911 for that woman, all right? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It's good to see Joyce Smith and her grandson here today. He's a student at University of Florida. He declares he'll be the president soon. That's wonderful. <laughs> it's good to have them from Lewis, Delaware. Anybody ever been to Lewis? Somebody raise their hand. We don't have any wealthy people here, Joyce. But it's a resort town. Her daddy had a huge motel there for years. 
And uh, Lewis is just a beautiful place to be, frankly. It's a place that you don't want to leave when you get there. Things so beautiful. All right, you got St. Corinthians chapter 1. Let's start with verse 8. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Verse 9. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Now, let me just stop there for a while. I see Jimmy people sitting over here. That scares me to death that he's still here. <laughs> Jimmy, have you ever fired a grove? A lot of people don't know what that means. I lived down in Dade County for years, and with the orange groves, the avocado groves, the lime groves, the grapefruit groves, and all the groves they had. Years ago, they would hire people at minimum wage to fire a grove, and we would sit up all night waiting, and if a frost was to come, we had to light all these old rubber tires and smudge pots and all those things to create a smoke over the grove so the frost wouldn't settle on the fruit. I want you to picture 50 guys, black, white, Cuban, Haitian, everything. We had them all. And a lot of times I worked there nights because you just sit around and wait in case they need you. Can you picture a 55-gallon drum full of fire, holes in it, and a bunch of guys sitting around talking and waiting to use the smudge pots and all? Not one time ever did I hear any of them say, let's talk about death. It's just not something you talk about. Talk about life. Talk about better life, good life. They sell you life insurance. It's not the truth. You don't get it till you die. So you don't get it anyway. All you do is pay for it. <laughs> Death. People don't talk much about it. I was preaching a meeting at Antioch Baptist Church in Atlanta years ago. And went out to eat with a family and a pastor. And the guy's name was Evangelius Voyages, which means Greek for evangelist, I guess. But we went out to eat together at a fancy restaurant there in Atlanta. And while we were eating, there was a horrible crash. I mean, it was terrible. And everybody looked out the window, and two cars hit head on. And they went up in the air, and then they settled down. And people ran from the street, some of them from the restaurant, toward the one car had six people in it. But nobody ran to the other cars. It settled down. It rolled backwards. So I went out the other door of the restaurant after that car. And when I pulled the door open, I was in a state of shock. It was a 12-year-old boy. He was lying up against the steering wheel. His left ear was mostly gone. And you know what he was saying? Why would God do this to me? i got bad news for you. God never told a 12-year-old to get in a car and drive it. But that's sort of what life meant to him, to talk about stuff like that. 
The problem is when you have an accident or you're in, how many have ever been involved in a near-death incident, accident, whatever, hands up all over the building? In the 70s up in Marion, Virginia, I was going down Interstate 81, had another man driving my van, pulling his trailer. And somehow or other, it got away from him. We crested a hill, and he started down, and he didn't slow down. And it began to whip, and finally it did a 180-degree turn right in the middle of the interstate, slammed against the guardrail, and it tilted over the guardrail, but the weight of it kept it from falling down into the pit. I sat there in shock. How in the world could I be in an accident? I'm a preacher. I preach to people. I love people. Why did this happen to me? And about that time, I looked up and I couldn't believe it. There's a gasoline tanker had seen us spin out. And he was sliding against the guardrail trying to get stopped. And he stopped only a few feet from the front of the truck that I was sitting in. And that truck driver got out of the truck and he was holding his heart and he sat down on the ground. He missed hitting us. All I could picture is now I'm going to blow up. And fortunately he stopped. But every time you're in a near-death incident, your mind first goes to your past. Something like that little boy said, why would God do this to me? Or like I said, why did this happen to me? We think about our past. I could add another word. What did I do wrong that caused this to happen to me? For some reason, our minds go into reverse and we think of the past. Things we've done wrong. I don't know about you, but I'm glad I'm saved. I do not want my past to go to heaven with me. How about you? And every one of us have that kind of a past. Like it or not, we have it. It's a terrible thing. I got to thinking about these verses, and I've titled the message, A Death Worth Talking About. Look on with me at verse 10. He was in the world, the world was made by him, and they knew him not. But he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Who is he talking about? He was talking about the Savior, Paul. But here's the funny thing. He knew... Let me reread that verse 9 again. Paul's speaking, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Did I give you the right text? Yeah, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You're wrong. I mean, I'm wrong, but you're wrong too. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I was preaching tonight's sermon. I'm so excited about preaching, I thought I'd do the both of them now. Save the trip. I'm, I'm just teasing. It, it, those of you who have been in 
a near-death innocent, you know what I'm talking about. You go to the past immediately. Paul did the same. Here in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I apologize. I knew that would happen. I had the notes close together, but now we're ready. For, <laughs> for we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. In Acts chapter 19, don't turn to it. It's not a text. (laughs) Paul talked about that near-death incident being stoned. Here, he despaired of life. Verse 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raised the dead. What he's saying is when I almost died, I thought of the past, but I already have settled that with Jesus. How about you? Have you settled that past with him? You know, if we not had a better reason in the world to get saved, our past should tell us that we ought to be saved. Sad, but a lot of people don't catch it. There is a penalty for our past, verse 10, who delivered us from so great a death. Paul knew that when he died, was, thought he was going to die, that the, it was already settled. He said, my past is already paid for. Christ paid the penalty of our past. And again, I repeat, If there's not another reason in the world for a church member to get saved, this is it. Because of our past. How many of us are part of a church and we're not part of Christ? Christianity Today, a certainly unreliable news article. And and when Christianity Today says it scares you to death, they estimate that only 2% of church membership in America are really born again. And when that crowd says it, you stand up and you look. Only about 2% of a church membership say it's sad, isn't it? But here's Paul ready to die, and he said, Jesus paid it all. I've hit the doctrine of justification. I don't care whether I die or not, but he'll never bring my past up to me again. There are reminders that take us back to those incidents. Those of you that have had a near-death incident, you know what I'm talking about. It may be a song, maybe a hillside. It just may be a thought that runs through your mind. Maybe a smell, an odor, or a tree or a place, and your mind flashes back to it. Why would God save us from our sin and then not let us forget it? Do you ever think of that? I know my sins are forgiven. I'm going to tell you what, night and day, the devil reminds me again and again of things I've done wrong. Now that my wife's in heaven, there's another 
50 years worth of things done wrong. We had a loving marriage and relationship. We worked together. We're very few feet apart most of our life. But you know what? There's still things I did wrong. Temper. Presumption. Assumption. You just can't do it. Why does our past still remind us of the past that Christ died for us? Look at verse 10 again. Who delivered us from so great a death? He paid the penalty of our past. Then he says this, in whom he doth deliver. My sister, seven years older than me, will be 86 years old next week. She worked for TWA in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, at the telephone operators or whatever they do. She had a beautiful 41 Chrysler Coupe. And she'd never let me drive it. It's mine. Have you heard that? It's mine. So the wisdom that I have, I copied her key. And when she parked in the lot for the carpool and got in the carpool and left, I took her car and enjoyed an evening together in my courtships and everything else. I just never gave it a thought. I knew it would be back there parked, and she'd never know I took it, except for one thing. I forgot about mud. Yeah, I got stuck in the mud. I was where I wasn't supposed to be anyway. But I got stuck in the mud. I called my older brother, Eddie. Had a 48 Buick Dynaflo Roadmaster. I mean, it was huge. I called him. I said, man, you got to get me out of this mess. And he came. And with that Buick, he pulled me backwards out of the mud. So right away, we went to one of those car washes. Threw a quarter in, cleaned everything up. And by 5 o'clock in the morning, I was tarred. I was a Yankee, so I was just tired. But uh, We stopped at an all-night A&W root beer stand. It's just open all night on Saturday, thank God. We stopped in there, parked his Buick, my car, or my sister's. Got a bite to eat. I went, parked the car, went home. Slept for about two hours. My dad came into the bedroom. He said, you ready to go to work? I said, yeah, I think so. He said, how'd it go last night? I said, oh, had a good time. I said, were you and Eddie out? Well, Eddie, Eddie was out with me, yeah. Where'd you go? Oh, just rode around. He said, no trouble? I said, no. He said, then what were you and your brother doing at A.W. staying at 5 o'clock this morning? I not only didn't think of mud, I never dreamed my dad and my mom would get up early and go to A&W for breakfast. Be sure your sin will what? Boy, and it does. But the reminders are there for one reason. If he paid the penalty of our past and he doth deliver, he delivers us because we remember that past. Do you think I'll ever steal a car again? I don't think so. I don't think so. It's just not going to happen. 
because I'm reminded in my past that that I want to forget, but I can't. I'm reminded to never do that again. So here he says, who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver. And then finally he says, in whom we trust that he will what? Yet deliver us. As I stand here today, statistically, I'm closer than some of you to that day. But he will deliver me. He paid the penalty of my past. He delivers me from power that, of sin that is present. And one day, he's going to deliver me permanently from the very presence of sin. That day, my memory turns off. That day that I ascend into heaven, I'll never have another thought about that past. It'll be all future. How about you? It's wonderful. I love it. Think about walking streets of gold. Down on this earth, men kill each other for gold. God doesn't think much about it at all. He paves the streets with gold. Tells you what he thinks about asphalt, too. Years ago, my dad, who is a great dad, and he was a great dad, there were five of us kids. My dad was a disciplinarian. For a lot of years, I heard my mother say, you wait till your dad gets home. I remember I got a good report on my handwriting one day. I'm left-handed, so they beat me half to death during World War II trying to teach me to write right-handed, and I never would. But I got a good grade with a big gold star on it and very good written in red, and I ran all the way home. And I ran to the house. I saw the screen door. I didn't have to open it. The dog already wiped it out. But I opened it anyway, and I ran into the kitchen and held up that paper. I said, Mother, look! She looked up at me and pulled the apron up into her face. Go to your room. Wait till your dad gets home. I thought, oh, boy. What did I do? I did not know it, but my mother had a cake in the oven. And when I jumped, it went flat. Well, I went up. I didn't know anything about it. I went upstairs and laid around. Later on, finally, my older brother came and said, "Daniel, get down here to supper." I said, "Oh, why not wait till supper and let everybody see him beat me?" I could hear my dad's loops, the belt coming out of them at night. I could hear him coming toward the bedroom. So I went down. I sat down, ate supper. I knew not to ask for jelly sitting there eating and my older sister brings in this huge cake I mean it was beautiful and my mother I think she did it in jest she said Daniel would you like to have the first piece I thought oh it's here it comes it's coming she flipped that thing out put it on my plate and I looked at it it was 90% icing. She had the sides, but the bottom was gone. 
she filled it up with icing. Now look, my mother's already in heaven. And if you get there before me, don't you tell her. Anytime I knew she had a cake in the oven, I always stomped the floor. Because I like the icing best. Amen. <laughs> my dad, he was a disciplinarian of five kids. And when my older brother and I had to sleep in the same bedroom, that was like war. Sometimes even in the same bed, that was horrible. I wanted to kick him out, but he was bigger. We got the horse around one night, and I heard the steps creak. My dad was coming up those steps, and I could hear the belt coming out. He came in, man, when I saw him, I ran down that hallway fast I'd go. He was right after me. Ten years later, a little more, he said to me, I used to love whipping you because you would run. And I can get a better shot at you. <laughs> but about my 11th year, I realized I was running the wrong way. And when I heard my dad come in the belt, I ran at my dad. I squeezed him so tight, he couldn't even reach me. And, and there's a theology in that. We need to get so close to God that beating won't be necessary. Amen. One day, that day, is coming. I don't know how you pray at home. I pray for God to come today, come in my lifetime. And I've threatened him with it. Say, Heavenly Father, you need to send Jesus on down. And if he tarries his coming, I hope you let me live a hundred years. I don't think that threat does him any good. Amen. Let's bow our heads in prayer.